you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Titling this, Citizens of an Unshakable Kingdom. Citizens of an Unshakable Kingdom. Our world is shaken. I mean, it it feels completely broken right now. People, it's falling apart. People are scrambling in, in so many different ways. And now what we're seeing is, as, as the days and the weeks go on, the world is shaking, but there's something that's not being shook up. There's something that's not moving. And really what we're doing is we're seeing now how the gospel and the kingdom of God is standing firm and standing tall amidst a really shaken and broken world. I think today what we're going to see now, yes, that we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom, but now we are coming face to face with the terrifying, ferociously holiness of God. We're coming face to face with a holy God. And so we need to be encouraged this morning as believers, that we are citizens of a kingdom that is not shaken, that we are citizens of an unshakable king, and that we are being led by him, and that we are to call others to that citizenship, right? And that's what I hope today, is that we come out emboldened and confident that we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom, and that we have the courage to go and call a shaking and falling world into citizenship with the unshakable king. And so we're going to see our citizenship really in in four different ways in this passage. We're going to see in 18 through 21, we're going to see that we're, we're citizens not of this world, okay? We're going to see that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We will see that we are citizens free from God's wrath, and that we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. Citizens not of this world, of a heavenly kingdom, free from God's holy wrath, of an unshakable kingdom. Citizens not of this world, verses 18 through 21 Again, the author has spent this entire chapter reminding the believer, the downcast believer, the persecuted believer, these Jews who have converted to Christianity, look, Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of your salvation. He's that anchored hope I was telling you about. And yes, you're going through hard things, but do not misunderstand. You are not being punished for your sins. Jesus was punished for your sins. You are being disciplined because you are legitimate children, sons and daughters of the living God. You're not like Esau who despised his birthright, but you're like Jacob who eagerly went after it. You uphold it. So then, church, don't don't walk around with drooping hands and with drooping heads and with drooping posture, but lift up, be encouraged, take a bold stance for who you are in Christ. For, he says in 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and a 
the sound of a trumpet and voice and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said i tremble with fear we are citizens not of this world really what we're seeing here in this picture of Mount Sinai, and this goes back to Exodus chapter 19. God took his people Israel out of an, a very oppressive uh, situation. They were enslaved and impressed, uh, oppressed, excuse me, by the Egyptians. They were killing them off, committing genocide, so that Israel could not continue to multiply in number. And so God hears their cry, he tends to their plea, and he goes in and he pulls, he rescues his people from the land of Egypt, brings them to the other side of the Red Sea. And because they had sinned, Israel had sinned in the wilderness, they then stay there for the next 40 years. But while they are there, instead of God just giving up on them, he comes to them on Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai kind of becomes the centerpiece for where God comes down and interacts with his people. And it is a terrifying sight. Everything that we just read right here is almost verbatim from what you see in Exodus 19. It's, it's thunderous. It's lightning. There's a lot of power. Yeah, if your animal touches that mountain, you got to stone that animal to death. No one touches this mountain because God's holiness is terrifying. Now, let me explain something about God's holiness and this terrifying language, right? Because we can often misunderstand what we're seeing here, that God is just an angry, vindictive God, and don't touch my mountain like a grumpy old man or something. But no, his holiness comes from his love. I've mentioned this before. His wrath is not bore out of a position of evil. His wrath is bore out of a position of love. Before creation, before anything was even made, it was just God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Perfect unity, perfect love. That means everything that came out of Him in the sense of creation was bore out of love. His creation was made from a posture of love. And His wrath comes because his creation sinned against him. So his wrath, his fury comes from that posture of love. I've used this illustration before. As a parent, when you see your children playing in the front yard and a car comes zooming down, you become red hot angry because you don't want your child to die. You don't want that car to speed down. That's a, that's a righteous anger and God is full of righteous anger. He is seeing that sin has destroyed his people. It's destroyed his people. And so now we, when we come to Mount Sinai, we see how devastating our sin really is. It's not a game. It's really that devastating that you can't even come to God. So then Israel is standing here in the wilderness. How do I ascend the mountain of God? And that's the beauty of the picture of the gospel here is that God in the wilderness doesn't tell Israel, hey, go get your stuff together and get holy enough so that you can come up on the mountain and be with me. The mountain is holy. It's trembling. And so suffering victims, an oppressed people come face to face with the holiness of God. 
And even then, they are still deemed unholy and unworthy of touching the mountain. And so what we see is the holiness of God in the Old Testament was yet not ready to dwell with sinners. And so we see small snippets. You know, Sinai was kind of the starting point of the dwelling holiness of God. And then we see the tabernacle. And so God kind of comes down off the mountain to the tabernacle. And then we see Him come into the temple. And then eventually we get to the gospel where the fullness of the glory of God dwells in Jesus Christ and He comes among us. And so this is just a a copy, a little snapshot of what is to come for Israel. And even though Moses could go up the mountain and God would not destroy him, he still, he still couldn't see the fullness of God's glory. He couldn't behold it, otherwise it would have killed him. So somebody has to make a way. Somebody has to be able to bring us to God. Sinai reminds us that we are not holy enough. We are not holy enough to ascend the mountain of God on our own. It also reminds us that our citizenship is not on the earth. We don't have to go looking and discovering, hey, where's Mount Sinai at? We don't have to do that. That's not the point. And what we're reminded of as well is that without Jesus, God's holiness forever remains a terror to us. Now, do not misunderstand. God's holiness will always be terrifying, but it is now inviting to us because we are in Christ. I want us to also understand there's a unique paradox here. God was offended, if you will. God is the most offended when sinners act out, when sinners sin. God was felt, if you will, more offended for Israel's sake for what Egypt was doing to them. And I'll say, in our current situation, in regards to racism, God is the most offended. God is the most offended. Racism is ungodly. Israel was oppressed. God delivered. But here's where we have to, where the rubber meets the road. But even Israel, even Israel was still not able to touch the mountain. Israel needed to get to God, but God would have to make a way to get to them. And so my point is this. We are all perpetrators and we are all victims of sin in this world. And it stinks. And it's horrible. And we need to come beside those who are being victimized, if you will, and help provide healing and love and care. But then we also need to come alongside the perpetrators and lead them to repentance and bring everybody to the same God. The Gospel levels the playing field. I was told this last week, uh, somebody I know, their children are kind of in a, in a rough spot, and one of their children did something wrong. And because their child did something wrong, the, the government will not give them funding for counseling because that child is considered the perpetrator. But the government is giving funding to the victim because they are the victim. We live in a society where we look at it one way. 
But Sinai tells us none of us are holy enough to get to God. Not one of us. And so I want you to consider your reactions to the current situations, your solutions that you're pro- uh, providing to society, and I want you to measure it to the mountain of God. I want you to take whatever it is that you're saying on Facebook, whatever it is you're saying um, is the solution, whatever conversations you're having, including myself, and I want you to measure it to the mountain of God. Is it holy enough to ascend the mountain and live? Is it? Or will it have to be destroyed because it's not what God is wanting and what God requires? And so then you have to ask the question, then, well, what is lacking with the solution? What is lacking? Our solutions, church, are bound up in who our God is. Our solutions need to be bound up in our citizenship and where the root of our real citizenship comes from. We all are made in the image and the likeness of God. That is the human race, ethnicity. I can go back to my Italian roots. I can go back to my German roots. We can go back to our Asian roots. We can go back to our South American roots. We can go back to our African roots if we want. But if you trace humanity back to the core of our true race, it is this, image, likeness of God. And so we need to find our real solution in where our real citizenship is, our real identity. And so we are citizens not of this world, but we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Verses 22-24. But you have come to Mount Zion. So you didn't come to Mount Sinai, but you came to Mount Zion and to the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Zion represents for us heaven. Our kingdom is not here on earth. Our kingdom is in heaven. But Zion has more meaning and understanding than than just heaven. We see that when Israel comes out of the wilderness and, and comes into the land of Canaan, they end up establishing themselves. Jerusalem, the temple, this becomes Zion. But it was just a foreshadowing, a small picture of a cosmic reality of Zion in the heavens. And what is up there? Our living God. This is the hope that these believers are to cling on to. Because what happens sometimes with suffering and pain is that we think God is deaf, that he's turning a blind eye, that he's sitting on his hands, that he's really, he's fallen asleep on the throne because he's got his feet kicked up on the footstool. But what we have to understand is that God is living and active. He is not blind. He is not deaf to these things. He's never sleeping. He feels, the Psalms say, indignation every single day. 
You and I may feel indignation during the, day, during the waking hours, but when we're in deep sleep, we often forget. But even during that time, God is feeling it. He is alive. He is not overlooking our suffering and our pain. He sees it very clearly, and He has provided a solution. And so this temple, this dwelling place of God that we see throughout the Old Testament, Him on Sinai, Him in the tabernacle, Him in the temple, all just point to a greater reality of a dwelling to come. But there's something beautiful about the temple. The temple was built and designed to be a house of prayer for the nations. You hear that? For the nations. God was calling all nations, all tribes, all kingdoms unto himself, and he would receive them if they would repent and they would follow him. God was not prejudiced in inviting people into his kingdom. Even Egypt could have repented and come to him. And so we are citizens of a new heavenly kingdom, of a new assembly, it says, or that could be translated church. This kingdom, this gathering, this assembly consists of a a heavenly host. You have angels and you have all of the heavenly creation all testifying together with saints redeemed and celebrating God. And so then, this kingdom is the church. We are looking to something that is not seen, yet we are visible right now. We are longing for a kingdom where our heavenly Father resides, and yet we are living active citizens of a real kingdom. And so then we are the living church of God, an unshakable kingdom among the nations. We can go anywhere in the world and put ourselves among the believers and we can all agree at least on one thing and that is the Word of God, the Kingdom of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We may have varying cultures and varying experiences in life, but this is what grounds us. This is what unites us together. And we have come into a new inheritance as well. As the people of God through Jesus, we obtained an inheritance as firstborns. We talked about that before. Jacob, or Esau, was the firstborn, but he, he rejected, he despised his birthright. And so Jacob's like, I'll take it, and he took it. But then Esau, out of his ego, he wanted, he wanted to despise his birthright, but he also felt entitled to the blessing. It's like turning to God saying, you know what, I don't like you, but you still owe me something. That's, what, that's the mentality of Esau. But what the author is telling us here is that we all have the inheritance like Jacob received the inheritance, like Jacob received the blessing. We all are now considered firstborn to God Almighty. Meaning we have access, we have resources that are overflowing in the heavenlies. Our names are written on a scroll in a book that cannot be touched. You can't exchange those names for a bowl of soup like Esau did. They are eternal. They are planted there forever. And you see that in Revelation 21 and 27. There are going to be myriads of myriads of people surrounding the throne. And all of us who are in Christ, our names have been written 
in that book. So we are not like Esau. We are not like Esau who despised God, but we are instead like Jacob. You see what Esau did? Is that he left. If you read the story, and a lot of you who, who are a part of the, the men's and women's Bible study, you've been working through the book of Genesis. There was a lot of tension between Jacob and Esau. But then you notice Esau leaves, and then he comes back, and it seems like everything's good. Like they're best friends. Hey, it's so good to see you, Jacob. And how come? Because Esau left pouting, and he went and started his own tribe, his own nation, doing it his own way, under his own rules, and he eventually led a nation to be uh, recognized as the Edomites, and the Edomites would later become the direct enemies of God. So don't be like Esau and just run off and say, you know, I'm going to do it a better way. I'm going to build my own kingdom. But you have not come to that. You've come to a new inheritance, a new assembly, a new heaven, or excuse me, a new dwelling. And it is provided to you by Jesus. Jesus, you have come to Him. He is the mediator. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's greater than Moses. You see, Moses stood on behalf of the people to God. And he did it in reverse. When God spoke to the people, he spoke through Moses, and then Moses relayed it to the people. He was a mediator between God and Israel. Jesus comes as a greater mediator between God and his people. And so there was a relationship between God and the people of Israel, and that was a covenantal relationship, and it was, it was sealed with the sprinkling of blood. You see that with Moses, where he stood on the mountain, he sprinkled blood really on the word of God, the tablets, and he sprinkled it on the people, signifying, sealing a covenantal relationship. But Jesus comes, and he comes, and he spills his blood for us, a perfect blood, one time, and he sprinkles it upon the believer. And he sprinkles it upon the perfect word of God so that there is a, a forever binding covenantal agreement, if you will, between God and man that can never be broken. It can sit, we call it the new covenant. And when Christ sprinkles that blood upon us, our conscience has been made clean. Free from an evil conscience. And so Jesus' blood, it speaks a better word, the author says. A better word than the blood of Abel. Abel, if you remember, was the son, one of the sons of Adam and Eve. This is the first murder we see in the Scripture. The first murder instantly after the creation of Adam and Eve. He was a righteous man. And so we see really prejudice hit humanity for the first time when Cain became so um, jealous and so frustrated with the righteousness of Abel that he rose up and he killed him out of anger. There was no, there was no system, no uh, uh, judicial system in that time. There was no, no law in the sense of, hey, let's take this to court and let's have due process and let's get Cain put in jail. There was nothing he was murdered. And so the blood of Abel is telling us this. There's a justice and there's a freedom and there's a peace that is coming. And the blood of Jesus comes in and says, justice and peace and freedom is here. 
It is a better word. It is a better word because the believers are now eternally locked into a perfect covenant under the perfect word of a perfect and living God. Our conscience then is made clear from an evil conscience. So Jesus advocates for us. He mediates for us. He stands between us and a ferociously holy God. But he brings us to God. Most world religions say you've got to ascend the mountain to God, do enough good things to get up to God, but Jesus has come down the mountain to us so that he can bring us then back to God. We need to be like our mediator. We need to advocate for people to come and know God. We need to be that middleman. We need to be that bridge where we say, brother, sister, come to our living God. Come to Jesus. Drink. Eat. Feast. Be free. And so we must advocate for God's holy, perfect, unshakable kingdom. Jesus has cleansed us from an evil conscience and He has bound us to God forever. So the holiness of God is something that we now have access to. It's not pending against us. So we can offer then God's gospel as a real solution to the world's problems and you don't have to feel guilty about it. There has been conversation out there that like, well, the church and the Bible and the gospel is enough. We've got to provide other solutions. Yes, I get it and I understand but you, can, you don't have to feel guilty and ashamed of God's word and his work and what he does because God brings real transformation. All he's telling you is to be faithful to him and to bring a lost and dying and broken world to him, to his kingdom. Show them what real gospel change can do. And when the world shakes, we are not to run off like Esau, start our own movements, start our own kingdoms, start our own tribes. But we need to embrace our citizenship. We need to embrace our citizenship. Who we are in Christ. This is not a time to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we go and as we work, we must do it with a posture of humility and rest and patience and endurance. God created for six days. He rested on the seventh day. And the scripture never tells us he stopped resting. He has continued to rest. And from a posture of rest, he is tearing down dividing walls of hostility in humanity throughout generations. We are not a sovereign God. We are limited in our ability, in our time, in our effort. Some of us are halfway done with life. Some of us are even closer to death than that. We have to understand that we only have a certain capacity, but God, God is not limited. He is the answer. Look, when, when Abel died, it would be frustrating, right? He died and there was no justice. There's no justice in that moment. Thousands of years pass. Jesus shows up on the scene and he dies on the cross for our sins. And when he died on the cross, in that moment, 
Cain was justified. Or Abel was justified, excuse me. And in that same moment, when Jesus died on the cross, we too were justified. It's hard. You know, Peter talks about this, that God is patiently enduring us. He feels indignation every day. Don't misunderstand. He's allowing brokenness to go on and to occur because in His infinite wisdom, His kingdom is going to advance. His gospel is going to advance. And then understand, one day He will come back and He will enact vengeance. Pure, holy, righteous vengeance. So do not worry. Do not worry. Because... Remember, Jesus, He was punished for our sin. We weren't punished for our sin. He came in our place, and therefore we are free from God's holy wrath. We're free from that wrath. There's a lot of pressure. What I'm getting at is there's a lot of pressure that we can take off of our own shoulders to try to control and fix everything right here, right now. We can trust in a sovereign living God. We are citizens free from God's holy wrath. 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. We are citizens free from God's holy wrath. The book of Hebrews several times over basically gives warning to the believers to not ignore God, to not fall away, we see in chapter 6. Here's again another warning. Do not refuse him. Do not be like Esau who gave up the promise and ran away. His dwelling place was shaken. I don't think any of us have heard of the Edomites making the front page news lately, right? God's justice, his peace, his holiness is speaking to us. Listen and do not refuse. The Word became flesh from heaven and spoke. So listen. What he says here in 27, the phrase yet once, once more comes from Haggai chapter 2. Haggai is a minor prophet in the Old Testament. He's speaking to Israel as kind of the first wave of exiles are coming out of captivity from the Babylonians. You understand, Israel, several times over, were enslaved to other nations and oppressed in very horrific ways. And so here's this word of God coming to an oppressed people as they're coming back into Jerusalem. God is telling them, the same Spirit of God that was with you from Egypt is with you now. That's what he promises them in the book of Haggai. And then he tells them, he tells them that he is promising that the future glory to come is going to be greater than what was in the past. 
Let that sink in for a minute. What God is telling these exiles as they're coming out of Babylonian captivity is that the intense, ferocious, and terrifying holiness of God that was experienced on Mount Sinai is nothing in comparison to the holiness and the glory that is to come. It's just a small taste. Small taste. So here's the picture. Jesus is the greater future glory of God. That is the perfect fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature. He is the visible representation of the invisible. So Jesus, He is the terrifying holiness that came from the mountain, the glory that came over the tabernacle, the glory that came over the temple, and now He has dwelt among us. We could not ascend the mountain so God had to come down the mountain to us. It is, we often don't think about the reality that by God dwelling among us, everywhere He went, people should have just been falling over dead. That's how holy He is. But God humbled Himself. That shouldn't even make sense in our own minds. But God humbled Himself. And because Jesus has come, that means a greater glory has come, so also the logic follows. Because Jesus has come, a greater wrath has come. You thought it was bad that if you touched the mountain, you had to be put to death? Well, I'm going to tell you, no one will escape. Eternity in hell is awaiting those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. The world around us is being shaken. Shaken by hostility, racial tensions. The world is desperately looking for a better society, a better government, a better way, but they will never find it if it is constantly being shaken by the Word of God. If God is strong enough to deliver Israel over and over again from oppressive rulers and nations, how much more can He deliver a nation from racial tensions through the blood of Jesus Christ. but, But how? Through His kingdom, through His assembly, through the church, you are the hands and feet of Christ to the nations. God is not sitting on His hands because you're the hands. He's not just standing around, not moving His feet. You're the feet, so move and go. We have to remember there is a great warning here. If you refuse Jesus, you refuse the gospel, you will not escape wrath. You're refusing the very thing, world, that you're trying to grasp for. You will be punished for your sin. But by faith in Jesus, Jesus would be punished for your sin. To refuse the message, or to refuse God's word, means it assumes then that there is someone and a message to refuse. Your conversations that you have been having in person with your lost friends or with believers around you, the conversations, the posts you're putting up on Facebook, the photos you're putting up on Instagram, the screenshots on Instagram, 
Are those being heard and seen as messages of the gospel? By refusing your suggestions or your posts or your conversations, if your friends or family or whoever it is are refusing you and your, your, your solutions to fixing, say, racism, are they refusing the gospel or are they refusing a worldly philosophy? Or are they accepting the gospel or accepting a worldly philosophy? And so again, I say, bring our solutions to the holy mountain of God and test it with God. We have a responsibility as believers to prioritize the gospel of Jesus. I'd hate to help restructure this society if that is the solution and provide a very peaceful, unifying environment and never open my mouth about the gospel and only help people live a comfortable life and ease straight into hell. Is that what we want to do? There's no real living hope in that. Instead, we affect change from the inside out. You understand Peter, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a letter to a slave owner about a slave who escaped from him and stole things from him. Philemon and Onesimus. He told the slave, go back because you're a Christian and the slave owner is a Christian. Go back to your master. Go back to your slave owner. And slave owner, master, receive him not as a slave but as a brother. And vice versa. This doesn't sound fun. This doesn't sound exciting. But what Paul is doing is, his priority is the kingdom of God and the gospel. He's not saying he's okay with that sort of society, that sort of structure, that sort of system. But what he's saying is, the gospel is a priority. And what do you think would happen in that Greco-Roman society and world when a piece of property, like a slave, is seen as an equal to a slave owner? when they treat each other as equals, as brothers in the faith, do you not think that would turn the world upside down as we see in the book of Acts? And it doesn't stop there. The apostle Peter does the same thing, instructing husbands, honor your wives. Wives were just a piece of property. They didn't have any rights. As women, you just keep your mouth shut and you let men handle the business. But what he's saying is, no, the gospel says she is an image bearer of Christ, so then she is equal in value and worth and dignity as you. Can you imagine what that society would be thinking when they see a husband honoring a wife, maybe even in public, when it should be that the the wife should be honoring the husband? It's flipping society completely on its head. Changing society from the inside out. Out, from the inside out. And I want to be abundantly clear. I'm not saying we don't do anything. What I'm saying is we need to do something, but if we're only waiting until a society or a system or a structure is perfectly fixed and in place, we may be dead and gone at that point. We need to bring the gospel to bear as the solution, and as we work towards a solution. Understand? And imagine a world where they come about, the world looks at Redeemer and sees all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all races, 
all backgrounds, all sorts of political parties coming together, being unified on the gospel of Jesus. It is a paradox to the world's thinking, to this community. So the first win is for us is to extend the invitation to our brothers and sisters of all colors from a shakable and broken system and invite them to an unshakable kingdom, the kingdom of God. And then we see societal transformation. That's why when the gospel goes into villages, it goes into unreached people places, and people groups, and the church is formed, the entire community is changed. That works. God built the church. We didn't make it up. He built this structure. He built this system for this very purpose. And so we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. Verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Be grateful, church. Yes, even during this time of frustration and tension and anger, we can be grateful. We can smile. It's okay. I know I'm an intense person. I get it. I'm the football jock guy, and I, you know, I'm huge. I got big hands, and like, you're intimidated if I wave them around. But look, I love you guys, right? I'd rather hug you than anything. We can smile amidst all of these things because... Our hope and our joy, our happiness is not found in ourselves or our society, but is found in Christ alone. I think our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world get that very clearly. We are of a kingdom unshakable. Listen, all kingdoms will be shaken. All of them. When God created in Genesis, you know what he did not create? He did not create a certain ethnicity, if you will. He did not create borders. He did not create governments. He did not create any of those things. He didn't even create the law in that time. It was just him. It was God and his people and us dwelling with him. Kingdoms were essentially developed because of brokenness. Israel came to God through the prophet Samuel saying, hey, we want a king and a kingdom like everyone else. This isn't fair. Samuel goes, hey, God, um, these, these idiots over here want a kingdom instead of you. And God says, just let them have it. And so then you see King Saul rise up from that point on. Kingdoms are generally broke, are made out of brokenness. And even Israel was broken. You see their kingdom come together as a united kingdom. Then you see the divided kingdom, Israel, Judah. And then you see those kingdoms even broken down as they go into captivity with the Assyrians, with the Babylonians, with the Persians. But you know, there's one kingdom that still exists today. Where's Rome? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the Persians? Where are the Greeks? Where, where are those empires? Where are those powers? They're gone. But there's one power that remains. One kingdom that remains. And it is the kingdom of God. And so this then gives the downcast audience of the book of Hebrews real hope. Hey look, you're not being punished by God. Yes, what is happening in the world really stinks and it's painful and it hurts. But 
You have real hope because you are a part of an unshakable kingdom led by an unshakable king. So let's turn then from a posture of drooping and sorrow to a posture of raised hands and praise and acceptable worship to God. And so our acceptable worship then is brought to us by our Savior, our mediator, the blood that speaks a better word. Jesus qualifies the believers for worship. We don't have to just stand far from the mountain and worship God. We are actually invited to draw near. He makes us qualified for this. He makes the believer to have the ability to approach God. He makes us see that our God is a consuming fire. And so thinking about yourselves and what's going on in your world, is there anything in your your thinking or in your life that has really been rattled and shaken up these last several months that you're finding out they're actually falling apart and not holding true? If so, ask yourself why. Are they bound up in the unshakable kingdom of God or are they bound up in something else that you're trying to build? And maybe you don't even realize it. Look, we are unshakable residents, unshakable citizens of an unshakable kingdom. The world is crying for a new system, a new government, a new structure. And it will most likely happen that something will change. But what exactly? And this is where you and I come in. As the church of the living God, we are the change. The answer is sitting right under our noses. It's right Here, we represent the only system that is unbreakable, unshakable. And again, yes, I know the church has messed up time and time again, but the church, according to God's Word, is the unshakable government and structure, if you will, the unshakable kingdom that we're all looking for. When the world is shaking as it is right now, the attention then is drawn to the one thing that is immovable and unshakable. I think right now, the world is looking to the church. At least in my conversations with believers and unbelievers, we're agreeing that I have a friend who's a a secular humanist, and he told me, I wish the church, I wish the whole world would be like the church, our entire society would be better. I'm like, great. You should follow Jesus. And he's like, eh. Right? But all eyes are on us because we're not moving in that way. We're not falling apart. We're held together by something unshakable. So we have a responsibility then to steward that, uh, that posture or people looking at us, to steward that responsibility to open our mouths and to, do, to say something and to call people to Christ. We are, or we must be the change that the world is grasping after. We must show the world what true racial unity looks like in the body. We must show the world what unity looks like despite political position. I told a lady yesterday in my neighborhood, yeah, in our church we have Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, and Liberals. She's like, and y'all come together without fighting? I'm like, pretty much. I mean, there's disagreements, but it's not a divisive thing. 
And we see so, much, so many different things, so, many, so much diversity. I can't talk, whatever. But we are showing the world we are unified in Christ. It is a paradox. We must show the world that the kingdom is not about just toleration. Because toleration is just saying, I'll put up with you even though I don't like you. And this is where me and my secular humanist friend parted ways. Because I said, I don't want to just tolerate you, and I don't want you to just tolerate me, but to come into true unity and love and relationship with one another. And the world must look at us and say, man, that's what we're looking for. That's what we desire. Tell me more. And we must be ready to speak a better word. Is the shakiness of the world around you causing you to have drooping hands and heads and posture? Feeling like you're constantly in despair, like there's no win, we're all just losing? And I would say turn to Christ, to the kingdom unshakable, and allow Him, His work, and what He's done for you to give you strength, to lift up your drooping hands in praise to Him. If you're not encouraged by your King, by your Savior, then how can you expect the world to be encouraged? When the early church came together, shortly after the fall of the Holy Spirit, it was said that fear and awe came across the entire community as they watched the church unfold before them. Meaning, lost people were seeing the unshakable unity and worship of the church, and it put that entire community in fear of God and awe of His work. And so as a church of the living God, the God who is an all-consuming fire, do you not think that if we are burning with worship, full of reverence and speaking His praise from our lips, that our community will not see what's happening? Of course they will see what's happening because God is not hiding in a closet. He's on display right here, right now, in this room, as you walk out to your car, as you go out through life, as you work throughout the week, You are the visible display of the kingdom of God. We have an opportunity right now. So we have got to show the world, yes, we are citizens of this broken country and we want to provide real help with real solutions. But first and foremost, we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom with an unshakable king who is ferociously holy, merciful, and kind to come down from the mountain and to come to us. And this king is king over a kingdom that is comprised of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and he is not ashamed to call any of us sons and daughters. We are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. And we will not be silent. We will be full of praise and full of hope of a gospel, a kingdom, and a king who left his throne to come and bring us home. So let us lift our head. Jesus is coming.